Today's message is about God's love, and it begins with this reading from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're going to read verses 1 to 18. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Isn't that just precious? I mean, when you hear those words, don't you just... I don't know, does it give you chills? Because it does for me. It's this is the God, the creator of whom we speak. This is the one that we worship because we can't help it. This is the one we sing about, the one that we praise and preach about. And by the way, I want to say in the course of uh, this message how grateful I was for John's message last week. What a fine job he did of bringing the Word of God to you, and I commend him for that. I look forward to hearing him more, and we'll create opportunities for that. Well done. When we preach, we preach the Word that is the mind of God as as it is expressed through Scripture and as it is is sort of expelled from Scripture as as something irresistible to grasp. And now, here we are the week before Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday, and we're finding ourselves preparing once again for something that's very familiar to a lot of us, but not to all of us. And so as we move into Palm Sunday and and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it's very important that we take a moment today to remember what that's all about, what it's really about, the whole purpose behind these peculiar things that happen during this week. Those of us who have grown up in this, we take it all for granted, but it's wise to remember that there is a whole lot that we celebrate during this Passion Week that's very absurd and strange. 
but it makes sense when you understand God's motivation. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But let's begin with some terminology. We're going to do a little schoolwork today. This is because among us are always those with a great deal of knowledge who could probably come up here and take my place. And there are also those for whom this is all very new. And so let's begin with some terms. We refer to the passion of Christ. Maybe you saw that movie, The Passion of the Christ. And we talk about passion, and for many that connotes something entirely different than what it means in this particular case. Passion in this case refers to that journey of suffering that Jesus endured as he moved from Palm Sunday to the cross. And so we call it the passion or the journey of suffering. We call him Christ, which is the Greek version of the word that in Hebrew is Messiah. You've heard both terms used, I'm sure. Both words basically mean the deliverer, but specifically the deliverer who delivers from God's wrath, the one who removes us from the penalty that we rightly deserve, the one who ushers in peace on earth. This is what Christ or Messiah means. Palm Sunday is a Sunday that we sort of uh, acknowledge as two things, really. It usually begins with children parading into the sanctuary with palm fronds and sort of imitating what happened on that day when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. So for now, I'll just leave it with you that it's a day that we traditionally use to mark the beginning of Christ's passion week. Now, Maundy Thursday, that's an interesting uh, term. I never heard of Maundy Thursday when I was growing up in the Catholic Church. It was a term that became familiar to me after becoming part of United Methodist Churches. Maundy is a word that comes from Latin, uh, a Latin word that is mandatum, and it really just means like the mandate. So Maundy Thursday is a word that refers to Christ's mandate or commandment to love one another and to serve. And so it's usually commemorated in the spirit of Maundy Thursday as uh, we imitate Christ's washing of the disciples' feet. The fact that Jesus remembered to tell them that the most important thing they could do for him was to do as he did, which is take off that outer garment and uh, get down on his feet and his hands and knees rather and wash people's dirty feet. And so it's the day we remember his commandment to love in the way that he loves. We also call it Holy Thursday because it's also a Thursday where we will take the time to remember specifically that last supper, that Holy Communion that happened when Jesus took the Passover feast and sort of reframed it for the disciples and for us up and against what he would endure over the next few days and what it meant to the people who would receive it after all of these events had transpired. So Holy Thursday is always marked with Holy Communion. And uh, so we will do both on that Thursday before Easter Sunday. And then there's Good Friday. Now, Good Friday is the day when we recall Christ's spiritual torment, his... his, uh, uh, sham of a trial, his uh, death, his execution, his burial. We remember all of that on Good Friday, and well, it just seems strange that we call it good. Uh, 
And so a lot of people wonder, why do Christians call it Good Friday when it's the day when a terrible injustice was done, when terrible evil torture was inflicted upon an innocent man? None of that makes sense, and yet it does turn out to be the greatest good that all of time and space and human history has ever known because it is the day of our redemption. It is the day of a great victory. It doesn't make sense, but believe it or not, when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, that is the victory. And so it turns out Good Friday is actually a very good thing, and we'll talk about that now and even more as we get to Good Friday celebration. And we have to start with something really fundamental. If we're going to understand why God put Jesus through so much, why we commemorate so many odd events, even things that seem cruel and inhumane and terrible, why do we celebrate that if it's really just human ugliness at its worst? But we'll understand it once we really unpack the reason behind it. And to start with, uh, to, to understand the reason, we have to start with why God even created us in the first place. Have you ever wondered about that? Why did God create us? Why did God make people, especially ornery, ill-behaved children who sooner or later betray him? Why would God do such a thing? And there's really no perfect answer, but probably the shortest, most succinct answer is for God's pleasure. God created people for God's pleasure. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In Colossians, the writer says, All things were created by him and for him. As beings created in God's image, we've been given a certain creative instinct of our own. Who else in all of creation but humanity makes things that don't serve any particular purpose? They're just beautiful, and we like that. Look at all the beautiful things in our world that were created simply because it was a pleasure to create them. And they become for us a pleasure to look at. Take the stained glass window behind the screen here. Take, take the picture on the screen. Take any of the beautiful things that you see. Art, music, all of these spiritual things that give us spiritual delight. And yet, what earthly purpose do they serve? What material purpose do they serve? None, really. But they're worthy of our attention and joy. Because they were created... And whether the Creator knew it or not, they were created in the imitation of our great Creator, our Heavenly Father. And so as people who are capable of creating useless but very rewarding things, can we not relate to the joy and the pleasure that God had in creating? Can we not understand that God created because God wanted to? You know, I was joking with somebody the other day. We were talking about how we all swore when we were kids that when we got to be parents, we were going to never say, because I said so. And then one day we freaked out because we heard those words come out of our mouth. 
And yet it's true right back to the very beginning of creation. God created because God wanted to. In other words, when God said, let there be light, the answer to why is because God said so. And we don't get to understand why. We can't really get our minds wrapped around that because, well, like children whose parents have very valid reasons for their decisions that are beyond the children's comprehension, God created because God wanted to, and it's not really within our ken, our belief and understanding, to understand that entirely. Moses said this in Deuteronomy, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and beside God there is no other. So it's important to recognize that when God created everything, and especially when God created us, God did so from a separate place, that God is not part of the creation, that God, by God's very nature, is wholly other than what God created. And for that reason, we can't really put God into our full comprehension, and we shouldn't really. Because that would be to diminish God's nature in a way that takes away God's very godliness. So why did God create us? Well, God created us for God's pleasure. And so that God could share God's pleasure with us. Well, with that in mind then, why the passion of Jesus? Why did God create with such joy this humanity that then turns around and rejects God, and then God goes through the kind of suffering that only God can and pays a price that only God can pay in order to salvage God's creation, chief creation, humanity. Why? Well, you know, here's an interesting thought. The answer to that question is in the question. Because at the birth of sin in the human condition, the question was, why does God say you can't have everything you want? Satan put it to the woman and the man that way. Why does God tell you you can't have everything you want? And they said, well, God said we die. And, and Satan said, you won't die. And it was at that moment then that humanity started to question God's goodness and the efficacy of God's way, of God's word, of God's will, and why should we do what God says, and that why, why, why thing. It's the very essence of sin when you put it up against our holy and completely unique creator. The question of why... And the doubt of God's goodness is what led to this separation that was caused by sin. And so God in love creates the very people that God wants to share all of eternity with, to share God's joy with for now and always so that we might join with God in everything God is doing, that we might walk in the garden with God in the cool of the evening. And all of that changed because there were too many whys and too much doubt about God's goodness. And this is what sin is. Oh, sin turns into a lot of behaviors you can name. The late, great Billy Graham and his many evangelical uh, outreaches had often said to people, yes, sin is evil. It is crime. It is lying. It is betrayal. It is all of those things. And I simply 
support everything he said and sum it up by saying this. It's rejecting God's will, disrespecting God's goodness and righteousness or rightness. And so when John the Baptist says at a certain point about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sums up for us what God is trying to accomplish through Jesus, what God will accomplish through Jesus. He could have said, look, here's the guy who knows how to do it right. Be like him. That would have been true. He could have said, here's the goodest person you're ever going to meet. And it would be true. But instead, he says, see, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He introduces a term in that gospel account that is pretty tough for non-Christians, and it's not that easy for most Christians. He says, here is the propitiation for your sin. Propitiation. School time again. Definition. The one who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> Propitiation. Leave it to theologians, probably like lawyers back in the day, they got paid per syllable or something. I don't know. <laughs> Propitiation. But that's in the Bible. You'll read that word in some translations of the Bible. And what you should know is propitiation means the one who cancels sin. You know, it's like a debt. Have you ever had a book that was overdue? at the library, and you couldn't check out any more books until you settled your account. You had to pay your fine. You had to return your book. College students ever had your records withheld or whatever because you didn't turn in the book that was overdue? Moms and dads, have you had to pay the librarian for a book your kid lost or destroyed? <laughs> Maybe you've had your wages garnished because of an unpaid debt. The propitiation for our sin debt for God, this thing we owe God that is beyond our ability to ever repay, is Jesus. He goes in and pays off your debt at the library. He pays off the IRS. He pays off your bank note. He pays the penalty for your sin debt to God. And why? Why does he break the power of canceled sin and set the prisoners free? His blood who makes the foulest clean. His blood even availed for me. Why? Why would God allow such suffering from his own flesh? More really than we know. And we'll talk about that on Good Friday. What I believe really happens in the garden, for example. There's so much that Jesus suffered for our sake. And why would God do that? What is it for? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How many of you know which passage I just read? That's a pretty familiar one, isn't it? That rainbow-haired guy behind home plate always holds up John 3.16, right? Well, I just gave you 3.16 and 17. They go better together, trust me. 
See, it's difficult for us to imagine because of the human lens that we look through to understand what Jesus endured. And so it doesn't make much sense to us. But if we understand that God who created us for God's pleasure has felt a certain emptiness because of our separation from God. And so God, to correct the problem of sin that separates us from God, who created us for God's pleasure, creates the way of salvation, the way of removing the barrier so that we can be back in a constant connection with God. We call that our new birth in Christ and our Holy Spirit connection. So do you see how much God loves you? Are you beginning to understand that as we go through Passion and Holy Week, we are remembering not suffering and sorrow and grief, yet all of that is there. We are in fact remembering the great love that God has for us. And we should fill this place to capacity every week to celebrate God's love and worship the God of love because we just can't help it. You'll get this eventually. <laughs> Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.37 to uh, 39 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God doesn't want a broken relationship. God wants us to be in constant connection. The Creator still wants to share His pleasure with you and for you to rejoice in His pleasure, for you to join God in what God is doing because it's fun, because it's rewarding, because there's nothing better in it. In, in all the world than to be in God's will and doing with God whatever God is doing. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This holy week, if you haven't accepted that reality and let that crucifixion be your own crucifixion. Do you understand what he means when he says that in Galatians? He's saying that this is the cancellation of your sin debt to God. Therefore, accept that it's been paid don't keep trying to pay off a debt that's already been paid off. Simply say thank you to the one who paid it off for you and follow him. Till the very end of your days and into all eternity. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us anymore is because... They don't know him. Do you understand that to be this peculiar, happy people who celebrate these peculiar things that are going to be remembered next week, you're going to be a little odd? And that's okay. Because God loves you so much, it's your pleasure to be weirdos for Jesus. It's the best kind of weirdo there is. And finally, the best expression that we can give of God's love for us 
is to reflect that love to others. 1 John 4, 9 to 11 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, it is love not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Therefore, the best expression of God's love for you, in you, and through you, is love for others, for his love's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts for your name's sake. Be glorified in us and make your love manifest in us, we pray. Amen. Amen.